This is God's word. After taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, open our eyes this morning so that we may behold the wonderful things that are in your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I spent the majority of my 20s living in uh, the largest city in Iowa, Uh, often working two jobs and uh, moved in and out of three or four different apartments uh, in those years. And uh, I was not earning much during those years, and I became a bit cynical. Uh, One of the things that I was cynical about was what are called, what I called, Hallmark Holidays. You know those holidays that, that seem to be devised by the Hallmark gift card stores in order to drum up more business for them and other gift card companies, you know, like Mother's Day and Father's Day, Valentine's Day. When those holidays rolled around, I I would have to, to buy cards and gifts and maybe flowers because, well, that's what was expected of you. And if you happen to, uh, be around me in those moments, you might have heard a few grumbles. But that was before I was married and had children. Our first child, Esther, was born on April 29th, just a couple of weeks before Mother's Day. I think Greta was uh, awake for every hour of that day and in labor for the great majority of it. And I was by her side for the grueling labor and delivery Uh, At one point towards uh, the end, the the medical staff looked towards me and were immediately concerned. And they had me sit down, and someone brought me a cool, damp tower to put over my, my forehead. Well, 
we survived that process and we, 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 we brought Esther home and thus began um, the uh, days and, and weeks and months of multiple midnight feedings, diaper changes, washing load after load of, 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 of laundry, watching my wife use up all of her energy each day to care for our new baby. And two weeks later, after Esther was born, it was Mother's Day. And for the first time in my life, I could see that all, uh, I could finally see what all the fuss was about, why Mother's Day was such a big deal to so many people. You know, like never before, I understood. I grasped the significance of the day. Once I was blind, but now I see. Well, for the past few months in our series on Luke, Jesus and his disciples have been on their way to Jerusalem. Uh, since chapter 9, verse 51, when Luke told us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. We talked back then um, that when he set his face to go to Jerusalem, Jesus set his face to go to the cross, to go to his suffering and death for the salvation of his people. But before he set his face, prior to Jesus and the disciples beginning uh, that journey towards Jerusalem, he twice informed the disciples of what would happen to him there. In chapter 9, verses 21 and 22, and then again in verses 43 and 44, Jesus clearly told the disciples that he would suffer many things and be rejected by the religious authorities, be killed, and would rise again. But Luke tells us the disciples did not understand what he was talking about back then, they did not grasp the significance of this journey they were making to Jerusalem. They, they, they heard what Jesus was saying and, and, and all that he was teaching, but they couldn't yet see. They didn't see it. And this morning we are now in chapter 18, the end of chapter 18 in the Gospel of Luke, and, and still the disciples cannot see. They cannot grasp just who Jesus really is and what he came to do. And that reveals a potential problem for each of us. Maybe we have been following Jesus for quite some time. Maybe we have, have regularly listened to Jesus' teaching. But do we see? Do we understand just who he is? We might need to experience um, what the disciples need to experience before our eyes really opened, before we can really see. And that's what this passage is all about. Faith in Jesus opens our eyes to grasp that he is the Savior God's word promised. Faith in Jesus opens our eyes to grasp that he is the Savior God's word promised. As, as verse 31 tells us, Jesus and his disciples are still on their way to Jerusalem, but they are definitely getting closer now. And in this passage, Luke shows us three interactions on the way. Uh, one interaction with, with just Jesus and the disciples, where he once again tells them what's about to happen in Jerusalem. 
the next between a blind man and uh, a crowd of people traveling with Jesus as they are approaching the city of Jericho. And finally, there's an interaction between the blind man and Jesus. And so these three interactions are forming the structure of our message here this morning. The first interaction then, verses 31 through 34, here we are shown what we must grasp in order to see Jesus rightly. What we must grasp in order to see Jesus rightly. So we're going to go through this, this brief section here, 31 through 34, verse by verse, to focus on just what we are to grasp in order to see Jesus rightly. First, verse 31. After taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So Jesus uses the, the title here, Son of Man. This was Jesus' most often used description of himself. Uh, Jesus wanted his followers to know him as the Son of Man. Most uh, Jewish people in the first century would have known right away uh, just what he was referring to, although uh, Christians here in the 21st century often do not know what he's referring to. Uh, you've probably heard teachers say that Jesus was primarily pointing to his humanity when he called himself the Son of Man, that he was identifying himself with us, uh, or that he was pointing to his humility, that he had come as a servant, just, just a, son, a son of man. But in this verse, Jesus gives us a pretty, pretty big clue as to what he was referring to when he says, when he calls himself son of man. He said there, everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. So where should we look, Jesus? To know what you're referring to when you say son of man? Well, Jesus says, look to the prophets. Look to the prophets. For there you'll find what was written about the son of man. And we are introduced to the son of man in the prophet Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through through 14. There he is revealed to us there as one who was given dominion and glory and a kingdom by the ancient of days, that is, by, by almighty God. He was given authority over all peoples, nations, languages, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom shall never be destroyed. That's what we're told about the Son of Man in Daniel 7. And of course, that's a description um, that's, a, that's a reference to, that description is a reference to what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when the Lord revealed to King David through the prophet Nathan that God would have, or, the, or that God would, would, would have one of the sons of David, one of, the, one of the descendants of David sit on a throne forever, one whose kingdom would never come to an end. So Daniel 7 tells us That is the Son of Man. The one that God is promising David, that is the Son of Man. That is who Jesus was claiming to be. The Son of David, the Son of Man. But but that also might be why his disciples were so confused when Jesus kept saying what what, what was going to happen to the Son of Man in Jerusalem. So let's look here at verses 32 through 33. 
This is, again, what's written about the Son of Man by the prophets. It's all going to be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. Well, this doesn't sound like world domination. The Son of Man having to endure such horrible suffering is not what comes to mind when we read Daniel 7 or 2 Samuel 7. Those prophecies point to victory, point to dominion, point to glory, not being mocked and shamed and killed. Those prophecies point to the Son of Man ruling as as king over his enemies, not being spit upon and flogged by them. No, the Son of Man, the, the disciples were expecting, the Messiah that they were longing for was one who was going to rule and reign and deliver his people from their oppressors. And Jesus here is telling them that, yes, the Old Testament prophets pointed to a Messiah who, who would rule, who would reign, who would judge the nations, but that the pathway to reigning on an eternal throne must pass through Jerusalem. It must go through suffering, suffering on behalf of his people. He would deliver his people from condemnation by being condemned in their place. And we see that throughout the Old Testament scriptures with stories like Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, or the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus, and the whole tabernacle and temple sacrificial system. And then in the prophet Isaiah, we we learn about the Lord's servant who will suffer on behalf of God's people, which will lead to their restoration. Listen to what God says through Isaiah the prophet in uh, 53, verse 5. He says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So when we think about the reason why the Son of God came to the earth, we are not to primarily think that, well, he he came to be a good example for us of what it means to follow God. He was a wonderful example of what it really means to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, which is an example uh, uh, that we could really learn a lot from in our world right now. But, but, but that's not the primary reason why he came. Here in these verses, Jesus is showing us that his primary purpose, his mission, all that was written about him in the prophets was pointing to one main event. That is what was to take place in Jerusalem. Jesus was going to be betrayed and delivered over to the Gentiles by his own people, and they will mock him, and they will treat him shamefully, they will spit on him, They will flog him, which means that they will whip him and beat him until his back would be filled with lacerations and open wounds. And they will kill him by crucifixion, by nailing him to a cross of wood. But on the third day, he would rise again from the dead. 
this would all be done to fulfill all righteousness before God. For our sins must be condemned and punished and God would display his great love for his people by pouring out his wrath and condemnation against us on his son. For it says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood that he shed on that cross, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, Romans 5, 8 and 9. But the disciples at this point were still blind to all of it. Verse 34. But they, that's the disciples, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. They understood none of it. They did not grasp what Jesus was saying. They were like young, naive bachelors who don't understand why everyone makes us such a big fuss about Mother's Day. They just didn't have the eyes yet to see it. And interestingly, Luke then moves to an interaction between a blind man and a crowd outside of Jericho. That's verses 35 through 39. And here we see a blind man who can already see. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd going by. He inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. In the first century, the Roman Empire did not have uh, social security disability programs or a public welfare system of any kind. And so if you were blind, if you had such a, a disability that you really couldn't work and you wanted to eat, which of course everyone does, well then you were completely dependent upon the mercy of others. This man who was blind was sitting at a well-trafficked area near Jericho on a main road which led to Jerusalem. If people were heading to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, which is what Jesus and the disciples were doing, well, then there would be plenty of the right kind of traffic for a beggar. When I first uh, moved to Des Moines uh, in the late uh, 1990s, uh, two of the largest evangelical churches in the city were actually located just a few blocks away from each other on the northwest side of the city. And every Sunday morning, the beggars would get up early and they'd find their spot on the side of the road next to two major spotlights uh, in that neighborhood where they knew that most of the traffic that would be stopped at those lights would be on their way to these two churches. Location is important if you are a beggar, but so is timing. And this blind beggar here in our story uh, was in the right place at the right time in more ways than one. This blind beggar heard a much larger crowd than normal going by on the road, and so he was curious. Uh, he asked those passing by him about, about all the commotion, and he is told that it was because of Jesus of Nazareth. 
that he was passing by. And so that's why there's a large crowd around him. And, and, and then this man reveals immediately that he not only had heard of Jesus, but that he knew who Jesus really was. It says, calling him son of David twice. Now this is quite a revelation. Uh, the, the, the crowd of people who were traveling with Jesus that was making all this commotion referred to Jesus simply by his hometown. He was Jesus of Nazareth. And this was three years into his ministry around Galilee and, and, and Judea. Jesus was known for his teaching, for performing miracles of healing and authority over uh, demons. By this time, stories about him, you know, raising the dead were also circulating. So, so when someone would have heard the name Jesus of Nazareth, well, these types of things would have come into their minds. And that's why uh, uh, there was a big crowd traveling with him on the way to Jerusalem. So it would have been very understandable for the blind man to have shouted out something like this. Oh, Jesus, miracle worker, healer, please help me. But that's not what the man calls Jesus. Instead, he calls him Jesus, son of David. Connecting him to King David and the prophecy that the Lord gave King David. He is the son of man. He is the Messiah. He is the coming king, the one promised. And Luke wants us to notice this. He wants us to notice this. This is a blind man. A blind man who has resorted to, to begging by the side of a road. He's the one who sees who Jesus really is. He grasps the significance of who Jesus is. He's, he is not just a miracle worker. He is not just a great teacher. He is Jesus, the promised son of David, the son of man, the one whose reign will never come to an end. Now, this would be like uh, a physics major, being a, phys a being a physics major in college, and, and one week your little brother who's in the fifth grade comes to see you and tags along with you to class, and while in class, he ends up raising his hand and answering some of the most challenging questions your pr pr professor asks on that day. You're all thinking, how does he know this? What's going on? Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. He is the great hope for the people of God spoken of by the prophets. And it's this blind man who recognizes this. He may not be able to physically see, but he can see who Jesus really is. Something that the disciples still hadn't seen fully yet. There's someone else who knew this about Jesus. Like the blind man, it wasn't a highly educated scribe or, or rabbi or even a high priest. It was a poor, young, small-town girl that, that no one would have ever even heard of in all of history if it wasn't for God choosing her to be the mother of Jesus. In the first chapter of, of Luke's gospel, after Mary was told that she would give birth to Jesus, she was told that, that he would be the one whom God would give the throne of his father David too, and that he will reign forever. You see, in, in Luke, it is never the highly respected 
or the highly educated who know and recognize the deep things of God. It is usually those who are low, who are broken, who are poor and humble in society who are given these things to see. Mary even praised God for this in Luke 1, 52. She says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble, of humble estate. So it, it, it is the shepherds whom the angels give the announcement of Jesus' birth to. It is children who are told that the kingdom of God belongs to them. And it is this blind beggar who is shown to be a model of discipleship who recognizes who Jesus is and who immediately follows him rather than that rich young ruler that we heard about last week who, who, who said he had been following the commandments all of his life. Once again, we see that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But even though this man could see who Jesus was better than those who were following him on the road to Jerusalem, the crowd tries to silence him and says to him basically, you do not matter to anyone, least of all to someone important like Jesus. They thought he was not worth Jesus' time. But like the persistent widow in the parable, the blind man perseveres in his calling out to Jesus for mercy. You could say he perseveres in his prayers. He knew something that every disciple of Jesus must learn, that is that we will often have to defy social pressure in order to come to Jesus. And like the tax collector in Jesus' parable, the man cries out for mercy and he persists in his crying out. He doesn't stop until Jesus answers him. And in, and in these ways, the man shows what Jesus recognizes in verse 42, that he has great faith in Jesus. Faith that saves and sees who Jesus really is. And we are faced with the question again, do, do we have such faith? Do you have such faith? Are, are you willing to defy the social pressures that are pressing in on you more and more these days in order to follow Jesus, in order to glorify him with your life? We'll come to our final interaction, which is between Jesus and the blind man, where we now see faith in Jesus opens our eyes to see him rightly. Look at verses 40 through 43. Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him, and when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people. When they saw it, gave praise to God. Once again, Jesus shows his followers and all of us that the people that we might think don't matter, the people that, that we would tend to avoid and uh, believe that we just don't have time for, well, they are the very people who Jesus goes out of his way for in order to show them his love, in order to show them his mercy. And take note of Jesus' question to the man in verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man doesn't ask for wealth. He doesn't ask to be honored. He doesn't ask to be provided for for the rest of his life. 
He asked for the one thing that only God could do for him. He knows his great need. His great need is to see. And so he asked that he might recover his sight, and Jesus immediately, immediately grants his request, giving the man his sight by simply saying the words, recover your sight. And immediately he recovered his sight. This again is pointing the crowd and us to just who Jesus is, to his identity. He is not just a man from Nazareth. He's not just the son of a carpenter. He is the promised son of David. He is the savior uh, that the prophet spoke of. He is the fulfillment of, of all the promises that God has made to his people. He is the savior king, the Messiah. As Jesus said of himself back in Luke chapter four to his hometown congregation in Nazareth, when he read from Isaiah chapter 61, claiming that it was all about him, claiming that he fulfilled what the prophet was saying, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, anointed me. That's, that's messianic lang- language. Messiah means anointed one. He's saying, I am the Messiah. To proclaim the good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind. What do we see mentioned three different times here in this paragraph? Recovering of sight to the blind. The blind man says, let me recover my sight. Jesus said, recover your sight, and immediately he recovered his sight. Jesus is the Messiah. And the Messiah came to deliver his people and set them free from all that oppressed them, particularly sin and death. And the way the prophets revealed that he would accomplish this was through the suffering that he spoke of in verses 31 through 33. Now, you may not be blind, but you have an even worse condition than being physically blind. You stand guilty before the creator, before the God over heaven and earth. He gave us life. He called us to live in holiness, to obey his word. He told us if we would trust him that we would have life, but we have all turned away from that. You turned away from that life. You pursued a way contrary to his word. We are guilty. We stand condemned, and the consequence To our sin and guilt and rebellion is death and judgment and hell. But out of his love and grace, God promised his people a savior. And that savior is Jesus Christ, the Lord, the one we see here. He saved us by laying down his life on the cross. He suffered in all the ways that he mentioned. And through that suffering, he accomplished our salvation completely. And if we would turn from our way of living our lives with, you know, without him, our way of living by ignoring his word and doing our own thing, if we would humble ourselves like this man and cry out to Jesus for mercy, for forgiveness, and for salvation, if we would put our faith in him, then like the blind man here, that faith will save us. Verse 442, Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has Literally saved you. 
But maybe you're wondering, just what does it mean to put your faith in Jesus? What does having faith in Jesus even look like? Well, let's just take a look back at our Bibles this morning because Luke has provided us with a great example of someone who has saving faith. This blind man whom Jesus healed, how does he display his faith? Now, I would encourage you, you know, in your own study, look at this passage to today, the, the next few days, see all the ways in this passage that the man displays his faith in Jesus. But I'm just going to focus on a few things here this morning. First, faith unashamedly looks to Jesus and depends fully upon him for salvation. Once the man heard it was Jesus who who was passing by, he was not ashamed to yell out to him, to cry out to him, to plead with Jesus for mercy. And when Jesus gave him the opportunity, he showed his faith by looking to Jesus to do what only God could do. What about you? Do you unashamedly look to Jesus, call out to Jesus, no matter what anybody else says around you, and do you depend upon him alone for your salvation, from your guilt, from your sin? Have you confessed that to him? Have you told others about that? Do your close friends, do your coworkers know you follow Christ? Christ is your Savior. You love him. Next, uh, faith recognizes that all the Bible points to Jesus as the Savior King. The blind man recognized this, calling out to Jesus as as the Son of David, the promised King, whose kingdom will never come to an end. Do you know that Jesus is the King, that he will one day reign on a renewed and restored earth forever? Do you show your faith by submitting to your King? By serving him, by doing what he says. For as we see the man do this in verse 43, faith also follows Jesus in discipleship. He, he got up and followed him, just followed Jesus. And finally, faith praises and glorifies God there in verse 43. Faith worships God, not just by singing songs about him on Sunday mornings, but by talking about his goodness, his grace to our friends, to our, to our neighbors, to our children, to our grandchildren. Faith praises God primarily for our salvation through the great love that Christ showed us through his suffering and dying for us on the cross. So is that what you do? Is that what you do? That's what faith does. Faith does. 